Okay, good morning, everybody. Um, I hope you are doing well uh, during this very challenging times. Um, much of Australia is again in lockdown. So keep up the spirit and uh, uh, we do have hope for the future. This thing will eventually pass. And uh, now this week uh, we talking about hope. Um, Probably there's not much uh, positive or optimistic picture on the global power politics front. Um, when we talk about grid power politics, it seems that a lot of the Ajibati, if you like, uh, between great powers has been quite depressing and uh, scary and even dangerous because there's so much at stake when it comes to great power conflict. And so how we do, uh, how we make sense of great power relations, and we are often fed with uh, a lot of influential perspectives. Uh, we call those perspectives uh, mainstream uh, IR theories or approaches. So this week uh, we are going to walk you through some of the uh, very influential perspectives on how international relations and particularly grid power politics works. Um, when we talk about grid power politics, as you can see, power is right in the middle of uh, this phrase. So some say power is the currency of international relations. Uh, it's what uh, money is to economics, um, power is to international relations and particularly power politics. So power calculations, uh, yeah, as we are told, uh, it lies at the heart of how states uh, behave, how they perceive their interests. Uh, according to realist um, Hans Morgenthal, uh, indeed power is the proxy of national interests. So um, when we talk about national interests, it's difficult to um, quantify or uh, visualize. So there is this kind of a tendency of using power to um, stand in for uh, your interest. And the, so let's briefly look at um, so this kind of uh, power dynamics, uh, the understanding of power. So why is power so essential to international politics? Firstly, realism and indeed uh, mainstream IR theories uh, more broadly assume that the international system is an anarchical system. Uh, we do not have a, a world government uh, at the top uh, above all nation states. So it comes down to each country helping themselves. They need to self-help because they cannot rely on any other, uh, rely on the goodwill of other countries, um, which is, seems to be always in short supply, or on a central world government because there is none. So what is left? Uh, for countries to rely on is power, your own power. 
So there is this kind of, uh, you might say, cynical view about uh, international politics, uh, which is might is right. And according to realism, indeed, this seems to be the case. Uh, as the, uh, the quote uh, at the bottom of this uh, slide shows, the strong do what they can and the weak suffer the uh, must. So it seems that indeed uh, power is the uh, only uh, workable currency for countries to rely on. Um, so the, here you can see this kind of uh, dynamic going on uh, because of the essential uh, importance of power, uh, you want to pursue more power uh, in order to guarantee your survival, your security, your prosperity. Uh, and then this uh, dynamic will set the trend, grid power politics and create uh, grid powers and cause the rise and fall of powers in uh, international relations. And then this kind of dynamic uh, will go around in circles. Um, so the great power politics in, in turn entail the pursuit of uh, power. So this is a kind of a vicious cycle, if you like. But according to realism, this, this, uh, this is what uh, reality is. Uh, that, uh, that is how things are, especially according to structural realists. Um, so, that's, uh, so they believe in uh, a branch of realism called structural realism. Uh, realism, we know, uh, believes in the uh, uh, self-interested nature of human beings and uh, but extension nation states. So the pursuit of power or self-interest uh, is part of nature. And the real, uh, structural realism uh, does not question that kind of assumption, but it argues that uh, the more important thing is that uh, the structure, the international structure, because they argue, well, in domestic society, we also have, yeah, people are self-interested. Um, they, but they do not uh, have this kind of anarchical situation in, in a domestic society because there is the central government. Um, so structurally speaking, um, this kind of distribution of power uh, is centralized in this central government. That make, makes a lot of difference in how people behave. But internationally, it argues because of the anarchy, because of the lack of a central government, and very often because of the uneven distribution of power among different states, then you have this kind of problem of war, conflict, and uh, uh, contention, etc. Um, so that's why structural realism put a lot of emphasis on the international structure. By that, they mean uh, the structure of power distribution. So the balance of power is, when the balance of power is uneven, then you tend to get, get more uh, problems. Um, so 
they believe that uh, the more power you have in a basically anarchical environment, then you the more you are likely to become aggressive. So the, your power position in this kind of a distribution power will determine your uh, the way you behave. So determine your foreign policy. So that's basically a very uh, simple and powerful way of explaining international relations. Um, so somebody kind of hear sound. Okay, sorry. Um, again, seem to have a problem with the uh, with this slide. Let me um, share it again. Uh, okay. Okay. Can you uh, can you see the uh, the second page of the slide? Uh, yes, we can. Okay. Sorry about that. Um, so. Yeah, basically, yeah, that's um, how the, let me, okay, let's move on to the um, next slide. So according to structural realism, um, the obvious answer to the international peace and stability would be the balance of power. So if we can somehow divide uh, power more or less equally among states, then we would have a better chance of um, having a more peaceful international order. Uh, that's basically the, uh, the balance of power theory, um, which we will uh, touch on very shortly. But there are also other Theories, um, for example, hegemonic stability theory, um, then power transition theory, the clash of a civilization, and at the end of history. So these are very uh, influential perspectives on international relations. Now, first, let's uh, look at the balance of power theory. Uh, the balance of power, uh, if we uh, visualize this uh, on, a, on a scale, you can see, yeah, on this picture, uh, it shows uh, if they believe that um, the power of France uh, plus the power of Spain roughly equal the power of England and Holland uh, put together, so they believe that, yeah, this would achieve a kind of a power balance. Then when there is a balance, then there would be uh, peace. Um, this kind of theory has been lauded as almost uh, kind of a natural law uh, by political scientists. 
and uh, I ask scholars, for example, Kenneth Ward, who is uh, the most in, uh, influential structuralist. He said, if there's any uh, distinctively political theory of international politics, balance of power theories, they, and he, um, uh, he also says, yeah, it is a natural phenomenon. Um, just as uh, nature abhors uh, a vacuum, so international politics uh, abhors uh, unbalanced power. So he likens uh, the vacuum uh, to an unbalanced power situation. Um, so the, uh, as long as it is kind of unbalanced, unbalanced of power, then the nature will uh, work its really way through to rebalance it. And he also said that yeah, um, states uh, tend to form balances of power whether or not they wish to. So in other words, these are the kind of tendencies beyond their control. So they cannot help but um, engage in this kind of uh, behavior. So that's why he said, yeah, this is kind of a um, uh, almost like a, a not natural law like um, principle in IR. Um, yeah, others uh, have uh, said similar things. For example, Martin White, um, the balance of power is as nearly a fundamental law of po uh, politics as it is possible to find. And they are not uh, totally wrong, of course. Uh, when you look at uh, history, um, whether it's in ancient Greece uh, or ancient China, the warring period, uh, especially, or in, uh, in the Persian um, Empire period, or in the Italian city-state period, uh, you can have you can find uh, so many examples of um, this kind of a maneuvering of power games uh, to operate um, power balances. Uh, this map shows that um, in during the warring period, uh, state period of China, uh, the state of Qin, um, as you can see, it was the biggest power among the other um, yeah, six states. So there was this kind of uh, tendency for the, uh, the, uh, the vertical uh, alliances, uh, so those states on the right, um, to band together to balance against Qin. Um, but uh, Qin also tried to, um, to break that kind of alliance uh, to try to build some kind of horizontal uh, alliance. Eventually, uh, Qin succeeded uh, to become the first uh, unified um, dynasty in, in China. Uh, so that's the, the, uh, the beginning of the first Qin emperor. Um, so that's uh, part of yeah, China, China's history. Um, the Balanced power, as you can see, tends to um, to be biased against the dominant power. So whoever is seen as the uh, the big 
kids on the block uh, would be seen as uh, potentially dangerous. This is because um, according to the theory, yeah, we know uh, this thing that power uh, corrupts, uh, absolute power corrupts absolutely. And in IR, they also believe that um, if you have more power, you tend to throw your weight around uh, to abuse your power, then to threat, uh, threaten others. Uh, so that's why other countries do not want to see a uh, big dominant power among themselves. So they want to um, try to form a balance, uh, alliance uh, to against that kind of a dominance. So if you are a small power, then you may um, find an ally in other smaller powers so that you can pull your resources together to form a counterbalance uh, to uh, keep a check and balance against that dominant power. And this kind of a power balance theory, as we can see very often uh, has been in play uh, in international politics, in foreign policy. Uh, in the case of uh, the rise of China, for example, many uh, of its neighbors perceive China as uh, this kind of a upcoming uh, dominant power. So they are afraid of China. So they are trying to um, form some kind of alliance to balance against it. We know Australia, for example, uh, India, uh, Japan, um, they are part of the Quad uh, Alliance or semi-alliance um, in the region uh, to, yeah, basically to serve that purpose. Um, then um, they believe that uh, this kind of a balance of power theory believes, uh, as I mentioned, uh, if you, when you have a balance, then you will have um, peace, uh, stability, and international order. Um, now, we know uh, last week, uh, the required reading uh, from John Miyashima talk about why we will soon miss the Cold War. He wrote that um, article at the end of uh, the Cold War, uh, but immediately um, following the end of the Cold War, he predicted that we would uh, miss the Cold War. Why? Because not uh, the this kind of uh, uh, the tensions uh, or uh, all the negatives associated with the Cold War, but he said uh, we do miss the, uh, the, the, this kind of certainty provided by this kind of a bipolar um, structure uh, during the Cold War when uh, you had a clear picture of who were your friends, who were your enemies, and uh, there were, the world was divided roughly uh, into two sides. So it was easily predictable. Um, it, it's so easy to, um, uh, to calculate the power balance. But uh, at a, after the end of the Cold War, there would be this kind of a multilateral um, structure. So more players, more powerful countries. Um, so it's 
much less uh, easy to uh, to predict the uh, the dynamics. So that's uh, his argument. Well, a different uh, perspective to the balance of power theories, the uh, hegemonic stability theory. Yeah, we know uh, the balance of power theories believe that if power is divided, uh, distributed equally, there will be peace. But uh, hegemonic stability theory argues the opposite. It argues that very often instability arises of this kind of um, lack of power concentration, lack of uh, dominant power uh, as the uh, central authority in the um, in the international system. So it argues that uh, in many historical periods, stability was not a result of the balance of power. Actually, it was a result of the dominance of one uh, particularly powerful hegemon, for example, uh, Pax uh, Romana. Uh, can somebody mute yourself so I can hear the, uh, the sound? Um, so that's when uh, the Roman Empire was the dominant power, it, uh, it had ensured peace. Then you had, yeah, the Pax uh, Seneca, Pax uh, Britannica, and more recently, the uh, Pax Americana. So basically, peace under the rule of uh, the United States. Uh, this theory was uh, proposed by Charles Kinderberg. Uh, he argued that uh, the period between two world wars, um, was the Great Depression. At that time, there was no single dominant power to call the shot to ensure order. So that led to the, basically the chaos and then eventually the Second World War. So he argued that, yeah, we need a dominant hegemon to be on top. Now, you may have guessed uh, who is the dominant hegemon um, in the last uh, 50 years or so uh, that has been the United States. So the United States has been uh, referred to as the benevolent global uh, hegemon. Uh, it has been there to ensure peace and order and stability uh, to guarantee um, peace um, and human rights, uh, etc. So that, uh, at least, is an uh, argument uh, believed by many new conservatives and uh, many others as well. So U.S. global leadership basically uh, is the term uh, to refer to this um, hegemonic stability scenario under the rule of the United States. But we all know uh, in the last uh, four years or so, um, the election of Donald Trump as the U.S. president reversed that kind of policy orientation for the United States. 
we know that Donald Trump uh, had this uh, America First slogan. And for many um, American establishment uh, observers, politicians, they believe, uh, believe that this is a disaster for, uh, for US uh, role in the world and, uh, and for the rest of the world as well. As you can see this tweet from the very influential think tank Council for Foreign, um, Foreign Relations, they lamented uh, the lack of uh, the erosion of U.S. global leadership and Donald Trump. So um, when uh, Joe Biden, uh, the current U.S. president, announced that America is back, uh, there was so much uh, relief uh, among many observers that the United States uh, is once again taking up um, the leadership role in the world uh, to continue to underwrite international rules and stability. Um, so they, we have heard a lot about uh, how the United States has been playing this kind of uh, hegemonic um, stability role uh, here. You can see, uh, you can hear, you have heard a lot of talk about how the U.S.-led rules-based international order, and uh, the United States has helped set up uh, many international institutions, um, such as those uh, Bretton Woods institutions, as, uh, as uh, MIF, World Bank, uh, WTO, NATO, uh, etc. And the United States has been promoting uh, many international norms. Uh, we are familiar with, such as uh, human rights, democracy, transparency, rule of law, etc. Um, so this, uh, I believe, to be this kind of a backbone of current international order and stability. But uh, international, uh, international relations, as we know, uh, do not stay still. Uh, when you have hegemonic stability, but also you can have hegemonic decline. There are many reasons for this, for the change. Uh, one is that uh, the dominant power tend to uh, overcommit uh, or overreach. They tended to um, spend a lot of uh, resources, uh, energy, on guaranteeing the international order at expense of its own domestic order. So that's the term called in imperial overstretch. Uh, that's a term used by uh, Paul Kennedy, uh, the author of the rise and fall of great powers. So that's why Donald Trump and uh, his supporters uh, believe that uh, the United States is doing. Uh, the United States has been committed to nation buildings, uh, war on terror, and maintaining orders in other parts of the world while neglecting the United States itself. And so Trump uh, and his supporters uh, called for this kind of more isolationist approach, America first approach, and that uh, would reduce the dominance 
um, of the hegemon of the United States, for example, uh, even though it may help make America great again, uh, whether you believe that slogan or not, uh, even if that's true, but the objective is that to reduce the dominance or influence or leadership around the world. So that basically uh, would cancel out the hegemonic role. And on the other hand, you also have the other side of the dynamic because other countries um, may not always subscribe to the current hegemon. For example, China um, may be unhappy with uh, the way the United States does business. So, and other countries also may rise because the world, as we all know, is after all a very dynamic um, place. Um, not everybody is assigned a, 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 um, a fixed kind of uh, position, uh, a fixed size. Uh, they can grow, uh, they can decline. So that's what happens. You have different power dynamics, new, newly emerging powers that could eventually catch up with the existing hegemon. And then this is what uh, hegemonic uh, stability theory fears. Uh, they believe that when the new, uh, newly rising power reach uh, kind of a power parity with the dominant power, then there's this kind of a high likelihood of not just uh, any kind of a war, but hegemonic war, a war between the titans, uh, the, the major superpowers. And that could uh, basically wreck international stability. This is basically what uh, power transition theory argues. Power transition theory is this, um, the second phase, if you like, of hegemonic stability theory. So they are arguing for, yeah, from uh, different sides, but basically they share the same view. Um, power transition theories believe in the uh, hegemonic stability theory, but uh, their concern is uh, this kind of a hegemonic stability does not last. Um, it could be overturned by um, rising powers. So, their focus is more on how and uh, what happens when the rising powers, um, the power transition from the dominant power into the rising power. So that's why um, this is a theory called a power transition theory. According to Organsky, uh, who is uh, this leading scholar on this theory, uh, he argues that, um, yeah, the first sentence basically repeated the hegemonic stability theory argument, but he says, as new nations industrialized, uh, the older leader was challenged. Ordinarily, uh, ordinarily, such challenges by newcomers result in war. So, he said, yeah, this kind of challenge um, is almost, would almost guarantee a major war. 
So this is a very pessimistic assessment of international power politics. So why um, they think that uh, that way? Uh, this is because uh, they believe um, the current international order dominated by the uh, existing hegemon tends to disadvantage the rising powers. So because the rules and the norms uh, are written by the current um, status quo power, the newly uh, rising ones didn't have much, to, uh, much say in it uh, in the past. So they naturally would want to, um, to rewrite the rule and to change the arrangement of the international um, furniture, if you like. And so um, the rising powers are almost always uh, dissatisfied uh, with that kind of order. And when the, the dissatisfied rising power um, becomes more powerful, then they would begin to challenge that hegemon. So then this would spark uh, war in international relations. Of course, uh, the typical scenario here we are talking about is the, uh, the rise of China. Uh, and it is rapidly catching up with the United States. So as you can see, uh, measured by GDP on a purchasing power parity basis, China is already the biggest uh, economic power in the world. It overtook the United States uh, a few years ago. But in foreign exchange terms, uh, the United States uh, is still the largest economy in the world. And certainly the US is, um, remains by far the largest um, military power in the world. So in that sense, um, the power transition is underway, but uh, it's debatable whether China has indeed um, uh, get close to overtake the United States. Um, this kind of a power transition theory has been made popular, if you like, um, by the new term called Thucydides trap. The Thucydides, uh, we know, is the author of the uh, book called um, The Peloponnesian War. Uh, that, uh, that was a war uh, happened um, more than 2000 years ago um, in ancient Athens. The, the, this quote, I recommend that you memorize this because it's very uh, famous. Um, in the book, Thucydides uh, read, what made war inevitable was the growth of ethnic power and the fear which this caused in Sparta. So basically, uh, this is a typical power transition scenario. So the rise of ascending power um, was feared by Sparta. And this 
Sparta actually launched uh, a preemptive war against Athens, uh, and then it lost. So this uh, was this uh, kind of analogy, if you like, historical analogy that has been used to understand contemporary politics, uh, contemporary um, international relations uh, between the US and China. I, let me uh, play, how about play this um, short video clip. So you've got a new book out, and uh, can you, can you I like see the, the title uh, Death Before, but I, but I, the subtitle I don't like because you no, use a pretty no. big word in there. No. I'm gonna need a little no. help with it. No, it's, uh, it's called Death Before War: Can America and China Escape? Okay, um, maybe I, I should new sh share. Okay, let me stop sharing this and. Uh, Yeah, I have a lot of windows opening. Um, let me find the. Okay. Looks so cozy. Mhm. Mm yeah. So can can you see the the screen? Uh, YouTube. Yes, we can. Okay. Start again. So you've got a new book out, and uh, I like the title, Death Before, but I, but I, the subtitle I don't like because you use a pretty big word in there, and I'm going to need a little help with it. It's, uh, it's called Destined for War, Can America and China Escape Thucydides? So we even put up a website called uh, See Who's Talking About Thucydides. So Thucydides. Go to, go to Thucydides. His name Thucydides. is Thucydides. Thucydides Trap. And Thucydides' trap is a big idea. What's this trap? What is, what is Thucydides' trap? Well, the big idea is that when a rising power threatens to displace a ruling power, stuff happens, bad stuff. Uh, basically, alarm bell should sound, extreme danger ahead. I look at the last 500 years uh, of history mm -hmm. and find 16 cases where a rising power threatens to displace a major ruling power, mm -hmm. 12 of them in, in war, 4 of them in not war, so the challenge is to learn the lessons, both of the successes and the mistakes. So we've got uh, we've got a rising power, and the rising power is China. That's right. what we're talking about. Uh, and the ruling power is the United States. Right. Uh, we've got 12 cases in the past, in the past 500 years, where a rising power and a ruling power have come to war, and four cases where they've where they've peacefully war averted. War averted. So we've got a 25% chance that we'll have World War III sometime in the next. Well, I mean, they're basically just on that on that record, but right. I would say it's obviously more complicated than that. So this yeah. is not a statistical study. Right. This is not meant to be political science or social science for the sake of a, of a, of a sample. We are inviting identification of additional cases, because every case is interesting mm -hmm. because it helps you see some of the additional twists and turns. Mm -hmm. But in every case, the central axis is the rising power, 
which becomes more assertive. Uh, and very naturally, normally, wait, I'm bigger, I'm stronger, I deserve more say, I deserve more sway. And the reactions of the ruling power, which says, well, you're challenging the international order, you're challenging the status quo. You should be grateful for the environment that I built that allowed you to grow up to be bigger and stronger. So that dynamic we see over and over with many interesting nuances, and that's why the 16 cases are fascinating, as is the first case uh, 2,500 years ago between Athens and Sparta. Okay. Um, let me um, get back to the to the PowerPoint. Okay. Um, so the. Thucydides trap, um, yeah, it's hard to pronounce. I, I hope you can practice uh, a little bit, um, a few times to get used to that. Uh, the question, big question is whether the US and China can avoid falling into this Thucydides trap. Whether this power transition uh, from the US to China is bound to create a major conflict so that's the big question. And uh, this kind of uh, thing reminded me of my, my memory. Uh, when I was a child, I, my big brother uh, used to be uh, very uh, not nice to me. Uh, let's put it that way. So I, I once said to him, um, well, wait until I grow up basically, so I would get uh, revenge. Uh, so that's basically uh, my power transition kind of uh, scenario. So my theory is so when, I, when I grow up, when I become stronger, I would uh, basically overtake you. And, and as you can, could guess uh, what happened, so did we had a fight? Did we uh, have a big um, conflict when I grew up? Yeah, I certainly be not as probably still not as strong as him, but yeah, at least uh, equally um, on a kind of equal terms. Um, but we didn't uh, have a fight it's because also in the meantime, uh, my thought has changed. Uh, so you do not just have a power transition, but you also have this kind of uh, idea transition. Um, you no longer believe in that kind of uh, stuff anymore. Uh, you do not believe that getting revenge uh, is your, in your interest. So that's that's um, uh, that's a personal story to uh, give a footnote uh, to this kind of uh, great power politics observations. Now that's one pessimistic scenario uh, in a final uh, few minutes, uh, let's uh, briefly go to other um, two remaining uh, perspectives. One is the end of history. The end of history, what does that mean? Um, yeah, when we perhaps first encounter this kind of phrase, uh, we may be led to believe uh, the argument of the end of history itself. 
but in fact, it's not the case. Um, certainly, that's uh, what that's not what uh, the author Francis Fukuyama argues. By history, he means uh, history as this kind of single uh, evolutionary, coherent uh, temporal process of history. Um, its history is a kind of a linear process. Uh, you have a beginning uh, from, say, a very primitive start, and then reach a very advanced endpoint. So he talks about history in that sense. So history is this kind of evolutionary process. And in that sense, he believes that history will have an endpoint, and he is not alone in believing this, in this kind of a historical um, view. Uh, the some say this teleological view of time. Um, time has a purpose. Once it's finished, uh, reach that kind of uh, fulfill that purpose, uh, it comes to an end. Uh, but not time itself. Mm. Uh, Hegel, for example, believes that uh, history starts from the East, then travel the West, then the West represents the, the pinnacle of historical evolution. Karl Marx also believed in, uh, in the evolution of history. Uh, eventually, uh, the world wouldn't end in a communist uh, society. Now, Fukuyama believes that the end point is not communism. It's the opposite. It's the uh, liberal democratic capitalism system. And uh, why he believed in that, uh, that's all because of the end of the Cold War and the disintegration of the Soviet Union. Um, so he believed that this really proved that we have reached an end point in this kind of a political evolution. We could not have a better system than liberal democracy. So in that sense, we are at the end of history. And this is very promising uh, if you believe in uh, his theory, because if now nobody can actually come up with uh, any better system than liberal democracy than every state will naturally look up to liberal democracies as examples. They will want to become one. And the more countries become liberal democracies, the better. Because uh, you may um, remember, you may, uh, you may be familiar, there is this kind of a democratic peace theory. So democracies do not like to fight each other. So that would solve the problem. It would solve the problem of global power politics. Um, and so that's indeed is the strong argument uh, for quite a period of time after the end of the Cold War until fairly recently uh, that China and other authoritarian regimes would, um, would basically be, become democratized. Uh, they would join the liberal order and you have the uh, Princeton professor 
John Eckenbury talk about the liberal order is very resilient. Uh, it's easy to join, hard to overturn. So once you are in it, uh, you are trapped in it. So yeah, uh, basically this is a very uh, promising um, scenario. And China, of course, can be brought in through free trade, through uh, becoming a stakeholder in international institutions. So it would have less incentive to overturn or to challenge the current order. Um, but yeah, this sounds all very rosy and uh, uh, promising, but uh, we know history, uh, yeah, especially given the um, experience of the last few years, history has not ended uh, on liberal democracy as such. And indeed, many have become more disillusioned with uh, democracies. Um, then history may also be actually it's not linear. It could be circular, uh, as you can see from this trade. Um, history seems to come full circle. Um, no, though also, uh, history does not uh, exactly repeat itself, uh, of course. And finally, the clash of civilizations argument. Do you know who this idea, uh, whose idea is this? It's uh, Samuel Huntington. Um, actually, this idea, this uh, idea of a teacher um, to refute uh, his former students. So Fukuyama uh, was the student of Huntington at Harvard. So Huntington believed that, well, uh, the end of history, not so fast. Um, actually, we, uh, we are going to see more conflict, but the conflict would be more along the lines of civilizations rather than along the lines of ideologies between communism and capitalism. So which is the civilization against the which? Um, so this is a map uh, basically to illustrate the different civilizations. You have about eight or nine different civilizational zones. Mm, the blue ones are the Christian Western civilization uh, the red one, the Chinese uh, Confucian civilization, and the uh, the uh, green ones, the uh, Islamic civilizations. So he predicted that uh, the world would be would clash uh, between those kind of different civilizations, and very often behind each of these civilizations, you have different great powers, so that's why this seems to be a relevant perspective on great power relations. And he envisioned this kind of uh, literal, uh, almost literal fault lines between civilizations, as you can see uh, this map, uh, the lines dividing the Western Christian um, Zone and the Orthodox and the Islam. Um, so, in some way, these kind of lines did um, 
foreshadow these uh, clashes uh, in the former Yugoslavia, uh, the clash between Muslims and um, non-Muslims. So it, his theory has uh, got a lot of traction. Um, he also believed that eventually um, the Western civilization would be up against the coalition of Confucian and Islamic civilizations. So this, uh, this two would uh, be banding together uh, to balance against the Western power. So this is this kind of a balance of power theory within this uh, clash of the civilization perspectives. Okay, uh, I think we are running out of time. And so this is a very brief uh, summary of those main uh, mainstream IR theories uh, related to our understanding of grid power politics. Next week, uh, we are going to uh, talk about some different and alternative views, um, not so mainstream, uh, but uh, perhaps um, no less persuasive. It depends on uh, your personal view and uh, beliefs. Uh, so next week, yeah, we are going to um, go to in, go to that territory and to further discuss this. Uh, thank you, everybody, for uh, this week, and um, hope you are um, you're keeping well and keep in touch if you have any questions uh, about this unit. So all the best. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, everyone.